0: Verses one through fourteen. is twenty-two. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, and we will worship, and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the land for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we want to ask you to send your Holy Spirit this morning and open our eyes to see that the message of Christmas, the coming of the Savior, who would die on a cross, who would rise on the third day in our place, is a message that we find all throughout the text of Scripture. And help us to see it in this passage right here. And help us to rejoice in it and just praise You for all that You have done for us in Jesus Christ. And help us to see that in return, You are asking us to give everything to You in return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In order to understand the story of Christmas, we have to go back. Not back just a couple thousand years to the birth of Jesus in a little town called Bethlehem, but we have to go all the way back to the beginning of world history the Garden of Eden. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, you will recall, were enjoying paradise, quite literally. God had created the whole world for their enjoyment. And if you were here last week, you may remember that God only had one command in the entire world. And that command was, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God made it very clear That if they ate of that tree, they would surely die that day. God made the promise very clear. He made the command very clear. In the very day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, the serpent slithered into the garden, or perhaps flew into the garden, and he approached Eve and he said, You shall not surely die, contradicting what God has said. He said, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. Uh, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And we're told that she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her and he ate. And then God came to Adam and said, What have you done? And he blamed the woman. And then God came to Eve and she said, The devil made me do it. And then God came to the serpent and he cursed the serpent. And in the last part of that curse, we saw that a day was coming in which we would see the demise of the devil. In 3.15, in the last section, we read, He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In this curse, we have the promise that a day is coming when a woman is going to give birth to, to a son, and this son is going to conquer the serpents. And I had mentioned that Martin Luther made the great observation that God never told the serpent who he would be. So every time the woman gave birth to a son, she would tremble, or he would tremble, because he never knew, could this be the one? Well, we move ahead um, in the passage. After this promise, God comes to the woman, and he curses the woman in childbearing and in her marriage. And then he comes to Adam and he curses Adam in his work. And after the curses are doled out, we are surprised. Why are we surprised? What did God say would happen to Adam and Eve on the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What did God say would happen? They would die. And here the curses have come. And yet Adam and Eve are still standing. And we are absolutely stunned. How can that be? Because God is a gracious, merciful God. And because God has provided a substitute. Look at 321. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now you need to know that this passage right here is loaded uh, with symbolic meaning and rich theology. First of all, we have the introduction of animal sacrifice, beginning with the first death following We're told that He made garments of skins of an animal, perhaps a lamb. We're not told. Uh, We also have the beginning of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. All you kids know what that is? you know what a substitute is? Sometimes you have a substitute teacher. For example, sometimes when mom can't teach the students, dad will teach the students. That's how it works for homeschoolers. And you have a substitute teacher. You have a substitute who comes in and teaches the kid atonement. There's a big word. Atonement. In other words, cover up the sin. So God has another substitute, cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And God will accept the death of an innocent animal to atone for their sin. So, we do have death taking place on the first day. God says, you sin, you deserve to die. And He brings down the knife and He kills. As Adam and Eve, I picture Him going like this, just waiting. He kills an animal and He says, I'll accept their death in your place. And then, God clothes them in the skins of the animal, which introduces us to imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. You kids understand that term. Imputed. That's when something is given to your account. Let's say your bank account, and maybe your grandmother gives you money for Christmas. And that money is put in your account. You didn't have it, but it's put there. What's put in your account is righteousness, which means goodness, if I can state it very simply. Um, So God looks at us clothed in the righteousness of another. And I hope you see that this is looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ who will die in our place and His righteousness will be imputed to us and we um, will wear that righteousness. Now, what we have here in this passage are the great doctrines of uh, justification by faith, substitutionary atonement, imputed righteousness, as I said. And they're here in seed form at the very beginning. But as we read through the Old Testament, um, they're going to become clearer and clearer and clearer of what's taking place here. Now, I want to read one passage from Isaiah that I just find uh, fascinating. Isaiah 61.10 which gives us a hint of this uh, robe of righteousness. And that's the phrase in this verse. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me With the garments of salvation, He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So I know this is just at the beginning of Genesis, but this is what's happening to Adam and Eve. They deserve to die. But God kills the animal in their place and then takes their garments and they're being clothed with the garments of salvation. They're saved. And we see that salvation in the fact that they're alive. <laughs> the fact that they're still living shows that God has saved them and He has saved them through the death of another. And again, this is the beginning of the Bible. This is Genesis. But as we go through the Old Testament, we see how this sacrifice is going to become clearer and clearer. Well, after... Um, curse. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and then Eve gives birth to Cain and then she gives birth to Abel and there is conflict over these brothers because God accepts the sacrifice of Abel and he doesn't accept the sacrifice of Cain. All I want you to know is right from the very beginning, um, Cain and Abel, the very, the very first two boys that are given birth, they know they have to offer sacrifices to God. And, and I want to submit to you that they understand a lot more than we often give them credit for. I really do believe that they probably understand, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but most likely they understand we are Sinners, and we need to offer sacrifices to atone for our sins so that we can be forgiven. I think they understood that. And a little later, um, the doctrine of offering animal sacrifices for our sins is going to become clearer. But right up front, we see they saw the need to offer sacrifices. And then a couple chapters later, uh, Noah brings animals into the ark and he has extra animals because he knows that he has to offer sacrifices to God. So it was very clear right from the very beginning that sinners need sacrifices. Now, turn ahead to Genesis 22. And we'll see what is perhaps the most difficult sacrifice that a man has ever been commanded to give by God. Verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So, we're told in verse 1 that God is testing Abraham. Um, when I was a, a student at Moody, I had a professor who liked to call tests or exams opportunities. He said, I'm going to give you an opportunity Friday. It made it sound so positive. An opportunity to see how much you've learned this last week. And we'd all go, oh. <laughs> um, but a test is an opportunity for God's people to, to demonstrate that they really do trust Him. Because here's the truth. When the sun is shining, when all is well with the world, it's real easy to sing praises to God and talk about how wonderful He is and say, I have so much faith in God. But what happens when the sun goes down, the darkness sets in and adversity comes? Do we really trust God how strong is our faith and the fact of the matter is that's an opportunity for us to demonstrate how much we really do love God how devoted we are to him and how great our faith really is and we don't really know what our faith is like until God brings an opportunity a test our way and they will come our way in James 1.2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. Not if you face trials of various kinds. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. You will face trials. And as I said, Abraham is facing one of the greatest trials that a man has ever received. And I think every one of us parents can relate to this. Imagine God asking you to take one of your children and offer him or her as a burnt offering. I think it would shake us to the core of our being. But that's what God is asking Abraham to do. And let me pause just for a moment to say that unbelievers are absolutely repulsed by this command. They're absolutely repulsed. They look at this, and they say, God is commanding human sacrifice? And and not only should unbelievers be repulsed, we should be repulsed by human sacrifice. And we are, are we not? If you've read history of cultures that have human sacrifice, and God Himself commanded His people not to offer their children as human sacrifice. That's what the pagans did. They would offer their children to mullet. And they would burn their children in the fire. And God said, that's utterly repulsive. He commanded His people not to do that. God is repulsed by human sacrifice. But here God is asking Abraham to offer a human sacrifice. One unbeliever said, if Abraham was going to follow through with this, he wasn't religious. He was insane to follow such a God. Now, how could God require something like this? I think it's important for us Christians to have an answer. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian, saw this as a divine command to commit murder, and it is. He explained it as the suspension of ethical laws for a higher purpose. He explained it as the suspension of ethical laws for a higher purpose. In other words, God set aside ethical laws, including his own ethical laws, because he had a higher purpose. You guys comfortable with that? I'm not comfortable with that at all, because what Soren Kierkegaard is saying, that God committed the unethical, God committed that which is immoral. So I'm not comfortable with that explanation as well. What we need to remember is that we have so presumed upon the mercy, the grace, and the love of God that we have forgotten that God is also holy, righteous, and just. The wages of sin is death. And if God should say, I'm bringing about judgment for sin on this person. That's not unethical. That's not immoral. God is a just God. He has every right to condemn sinners to death. God is not suspending the unethical. He is bringing about that which is moral. He is bringing about righteousness and justice. And it's good to have these answers because unbelievers raise them. A while back, uh, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens was debating Pastor Doug Wilson. And during this debate, Christopher Hitchens said to Doug Wilson, Well, you have no problem with God calling for the extermination of entire nations. And Doug Wilson responded, You're right. I don't. And neither do you. He said, I don't have a problem with it because God commanded it. And he commanded it because they're sinners and they deserve justice. And he said, and you don't have a problem with it because in a world without God, who's to say what's right and what's wrong? It's nothing more than the survival of the fittest. It's no different than a mountain lion devouring a rabbit for dinner. So you're right. I don't have a problem with it, but neither do you with your system. So, I thought it was a good answer. Um, Regardless, it's good to have answers to these difficult questions that are raised. So, Abraham is asked to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And notice how verse 2 describes his son. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, Whom you love. Here's a question I have for you. At this point in time, how many sons does Abraham have? Two sons. His first son is Ishmael. His second son is Isaac. Now, Ishmael has been sent away. And uh, it could be that if God had said, you know, take your son, your only son, and he has, hadn't designated Isaac, he might have said, we've got to go find Ishmael. Uh, now, Ishmael has been sent away. Not that that would have been any easier, but what we need to realize that Isaac is the son of promise. This is what God had said. This is very important. God said, through Isaac, your descendants are going to inherit the promised land, the land of Canaan. Through Isaac, All the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Through Isaac, the Messiah is ultimately going to come. Isaac was everything. All the promises were bound up with Isaac. And now God says, I want you to kill Isaac before he has any children. So that's who Isaac is. But don't miss out on this language. Your son, your only son, Whom you love. What does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus. What a coincidence. I submit to you that is not a coincidence at all. Isaac is a type of Christ. That's the term theologians use. He's a picture of Jesus and what Jesus will do. And this will become clearer as we work our way through the passage. So he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go up to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I show you. And then verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. What's being emphasized here is obedience. God gives this command... And then we read, so Abraham rose early in the morning, gets everything ready, and then the passage ends by saying, he did all which God had commanded him. Sometimes we say as parents that um, the obedience of our children needs to be immediate, joyful, and complete. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Kids are told to clean their room, and two days later, it's not clean. And they say, "Oh, I, I was just getting ready to do it." No, um, grumbling obedience is disobedience. Okay, i Okay, half obedience is full disobedience. Tell your kids to clean their room. They pick up a couple things, and everything else is left. You know, I, thought I told you to clean your room. I did. You did. <laughs> What we see with Abraham here is immediate obedience. He gets up early in the morning. We're going to see that he's ready to offer complete obedience. He's going to do everything that God has told him to do. The passage doesn't say it, but it is possible that there was even joy, believe it or not, in the midst of this because of what he anticipated God would do. And we'll come to that um, in time. Verse 3, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. On the third day, why why didn't the author say a couple of few days later, Abraham arrived at the place? Why did he say the third day? For three days, Isaac has been as good as dead but the third day has arrived and He is going to live. And some of you might be thinking that my imagination is running away with me. It is not running away with me. This is how we are to read the Bible. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And by the way, as you're turning there, if you get a chance later to read the devotional, um, it's called the hermeneutical key. Jesus, we are to read the Bible, the Old Testament, looking for how it relates to Jesus. But for now, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. This is what the Old Testament said Jesus would do. He would die for our sins. And we see that every place with the sacrifices. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures. So, in the Old Testament, that's Christ is going to come. He's going to die for our sins. And He's going to rise on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that's what we read in the Nicene Creed this morning. He suffered. He was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. According to the Old Testament Scriptures. So, the question is, where in the Old Testament does it say that Christ would rise from the dead on the third day, what's that genesis thank you genesis twenty two four Any other places dun, 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 dun. The, story the story of Jonah. remember what Jesus said as Jonah was three days and three. Nights in the heart of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the hearts of the earth. Which tells us, as we read through the book of Jonah, you have to see Jonah as a type of Christ. And it doesn't have to be perfect, because I know you're thinking, well, he disobeyed. He did. But then he went where God told him to do. He died in that fish. He rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, he went to Nineveh, and he preached, and there was a massive revival After there was death and resurrection. Jonah is a type of Christ. So this is not a fanciful way of reading the Bible. This is how we're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to look for how it relates to Jesus. So back to Genesis 22. As we saw on the third day, he comes to the spot and then verse 5 says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And this is how it reads in the Hebrew. I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and we will come again to you. We're going to go over there, me and Isaac, and we're going to worship and and we are going to come back. Did Abraham really believe that? Was Abraham lying? What's going through Abraham's mind at this point? Something like this. Okay, I have been waiting years and years and years for a son. Finally, when I'm 100 years old and Sarah is 90, we're blessed with Isaac. And I'm told that all the promises are going to come through Isaac. The land to my descendants and all the nations will be blessed through him and the Messiah is going to come through him. God promised that. God is faithful. And now God says... I want you to take Isaac up to, and I want you to kill him and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And, and don't miss out on how graphic that is. A burnt sacrifice with emphasis on fire. He is going to be totally consumed. Now, how do those two go together? See what Abraham is wrestling with? God's made these promises. God's telling me to kill my son. How, how, how can it be? How can it be? And Abraham comes to a logical deduction. Does anybody know what it is? God's going to raise him from the dead. This is what we read in Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the author of Hebrews is saying there was a figurative resurrection on the third day. He received him back. So Abraham's thinking, I'm going to go. I'm going to offer him. I'm going to kill him. He's going to be a burnt offering. And then God is going to raise him from the dead. And this is why I said earlier that there could have been an anticipation of joy. Even if it was mingled with terror. How, how is this going to come about? But God is going to do something here. He's going to bring about a resurrection. And then verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Very strong emphasis on the wood here. The father takes the the wood on which he's going to be sacrificed and places it on Isaac, perhaps places it on his back. And we should see a clear parallel with Jesus who also carried the wood, the cross, on which he would be sacrificed. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Of course, the knife was to kill him. The fire most likely represents the judgment of God. Our God is a consuming fire. God brings about judgment. So the fire probably um, represented judgment for sin that was going to come upon Isaac. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Literally, God will see to it For himself, a lamb for a burnt offering, provide is a good interpretation of that. God himself will provide the lamb that's needed for a burnt offering. Abraham is not lying. He's not being evasive to Isaac. What he is doing is prophesying. In God's time, he is going to provide the lamb that we need for a burnt offering. The lamb that will atone for our sin. Then verse 9 And they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. By the way, that binding probably wasn't necessary. Uh, Most likely, Isaac was probably in his late teens. Perhaps he was 20 years old. Um, He could have fought off his father who was well over 100 years old. At this time, but he went willingly, seems to be the picture. And I think the binding is uh, meant to be another parallel with Christ, who was bound to the cross by the nails. But at any rate, um, he laid the wood in order, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, lays him on the wood. Notice that on the altar, on top of the wood. Again, clear reference to the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. At this point, we might ask the question, Isn't God omniscient? Doesn't God know everything? Didn't God already know that Abraham feared him and that he would not withhold his son? Of course, God knew that. Uh, Most likely, what's meant here by this word, now I know, is judgment. Now I know based upon what you have done, I can make a judgment for everybody else to see, including yourself, that you fear me and will not hold anything back. Of course, one of the reasons for this test is for Abraham's benefits. Think, think of how wonderful it would be for Abraham after this is all, after this is all over, after he's been able to calm down and, and he realizes what God had in store in this test and he's able to look back and he can lay on his bed at night and he can think, I was actually going to do it. I was actually going to sacrifice Isaac. I was actually going to give everything to God. I really do love God. He, he was greatly encouraged by that later. Think, I really do love God that much. See, and here's the truth. We don't really know how much we love God until we go through a difficult time. Until we go through the fire. And then we see how much we do or don't love God and trust God. But these tests are for our benefits, uh, For us to see where we're at, how we can grow and our relationship with Him. So He says, Now I know that you fear Me. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from Me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Once again, substitutionary atonement. Isaac, because he's a sinner like the rest of us, deserves to die. But God will accept a ram in his place. And here it's very explicit. He will accept a ram. Isaac can live because God will kill the ram in his place. But what did Isaac say earlier? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Now we have a ram. I think we have a hint that this ram is not the final sacrifice that God's people need. And look at verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And if you know a little Hebrew, you may know this, Jehovah Jireh. God will see literally, or God will see to it, or God will provide as it is said to this day. So that's interesting. So Genesis has been written. And then the author says, now this happens in the past, as it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall or will be provided. Future tense. So after this, the people of God were saying, you know what? On the mount, it, literally, it's He will be provided. Now, we need to back up a little bit. Verse 2. God told Abraham to go to the land of what? Moriah. Go to the land of Moriah. And I'll show you which mountain on which I want to sacrifice Isaac. And then we turn to 2 Chronicles 3. Verse 1. And we read this, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So Solomon who had the privilege of building the temple, built it in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which means when the Israelites were offering sacrifices to God, which they did so by the thousands, they came to Mount Moriah to offer the sacrifices. And then Jesus comes and He dies on a cross at Golgotha, which is at Mount Moriah. This prophecy in Genesis is very literal. On the mount, on Mount Moriah, he shall be seen, he will be provided the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And that's what happened when Jesus came. Offered on the exact same mount where Isaac was offered where all these sacrifices were offered as the final sacrifice at the precise place where God said it would happen. God is true to His Word to the very detail. Now, God has given us everything in Christ. God has given us everything. And, And Paul says that in Romans He who has not withheld His only Son, how will He not also along with Him? Give us everything. And He will. We are heirs of the kingdom. Heirs of the kingdom. Eventually, we are co-heirs with Christ. We're going to rule. We're going to reign with Him. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. So if you don't get what you want for Christmas, just be patient. In God's time, it's all ours. It is all ours. But here's what we also have to see. God is asking everything of us. Think about this test. He comes to Abraham and basically He says, Abraham, I want you to give me what's most important to you, your son. It's a way of saying, I want you to give me everything. This is what uh, Chuck Colson um, said in this book, A Dangerous Grace. I think this is fascinating. He said, the greatest challenge facing the church today is to reassert the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I think that's very insightful. He says, the Scriptures make clear the totality of Christ's claims upon us. And then he quotes Matthew sixteen twenty-four, where Jesus says, if anyone will come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And a cross is a symbol of death. Be willing to lay down your life and go wherever I tell you to go. Paul describes Jesus as the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The word tells us that Jesus became God incarnate, the one before whom all nations must one day stand for judgment and whose lordship every tongue will confess if we really understand what being Christian means, that this Christ, the living God, actually comes in to rule one's life, then everything must change. Values, goals, desires, habits. If Christ's lordship does not disrupt our lordship, then we must question the reality of our conversion. If Jesus Christ really is our Lord, then everything changes. And we have to be willing to lay down whatever He calls us to lay down. We have to be willing to follow Him wherever He tells us to go. And that's one of the lessons we also see here in Genesis 22. God gives us everything that He has. But He's also commanding that we give Him everything. Not as payback, but because He's deserving of everything that we have because of who He is and how gracious and how generous He is to us. So as we're thinking about what we're giving our spouses and our kids and our friends for Christmas, let's realize what God wants for Christmas. And of course, it's not just Christmas, but what God wants from us is our entire lives. That's what He's asking for. And He will be content with nothing left. But let's remember that He he is worthy because He is our Creator and He's our Redeemer. And of course, He's also our Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how it instructs us. For how it humbles us when we see what sinners we are and, and what, what we deserve, we keep our mouths silent. We, we have nothing to say. But then as we see how merciful and gracious you are towards us sinners by allowing Jesus to be a substitute sacrifice in our place, we, we are just awed. And sometimes we don't know how to respond. We thank you for your generous generosity to us. We thank you for your indescribable gift, Jesus Christ, who was given to us, whose birth we celebrate during this Advent season, and in whose name we pray. Amen.